0: Hello, welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all.
1: This week's Bible reading is from 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 18 to chapter 2, verse 5. to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth.
0: Hey there welcome to the bible talks nice to see you and uh, if you are someone that likes a challenging passage that's going to challenge how you presently think a little you're in for a good passage today we've got a great passage in front of us let's pray for god to help us understand it and then let's dig in and, uh, and face the challenge father god thanks so much for the opportunity to come to this place while we're at uni and to hear from you Thank you that you've spoken to us in the Bible. We recognise that in today's passage there are some challenging things that are going to challenge the way we sometimes think. Please help us to be able to listen well. Please help us to be able to think well about what you are saying and please help us to respond well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you wanted to convince someone to become a follower of Jesus, how would you try to do it? What would you do? What information would you want to put in front of them if you wanted to convince them to become a follower of Jesus? What kind of things would you try to talk about if you wanted to convince them to become a follower of Jesus? And can I flip the question around? Perhaps you're not yet a follower of Jesus. Can I flip the question and say, what kind of information would you like someone to put in front of you for you to become a follower of Jesus? Uh, what, What would you find convincing And what perhaps wouldn't be very convincing for you. Sometimes people try good rational arguments that in Christian circles are often called apologetics. Uh, Things like reasons why God is more likely to be there than not be there. Uh, Things like answering the question of why a good God would allow suffering. If he's perfectly good and perfectly powerful, why is there still suffering? Or things like how the order and the patterns that our world seems to follow suggest an intelligent designer behind it perhaps. Those kind of rational arguments we sometimes call apologetics. Is that where you'd reach to convince someone to become a follower of Jesus? I guess other people go different places. Other people go to impressive displays of God's power. Uh, Perhaps uh, over the years, people have tried to convince other people to become Christians by by putting on powerful displays of God's power, sometimes purported to be miracles of healing, things like that, Uh, displays of the Holy Spirit's presence. Would that be your chosen method of trying to convince someone to become a follower of Jesus? Still other people make big promises about what you would receive, if you become a follower of Jesus? What your life could be like? These promises range a long way from prosperity, riches, health, all the way through well-being, right the way down to just happiness and maybe living your best life now. Is that the way you would prefer to convince people to become followers of Jesus? Where would the gospel message about Jesus fit in in your plan? To convince someone to become a follower of Jesus, would the gospel message be kind of front and center, big picture? Or if you really wanted to convince someone to be a follower of Jesus, would you just kind of the gospel would be involved, but maybe not the key thing? Or is the gospel message really not a major part at all because you actually want to be really convincing? If you've ever felt as though the gospel message about Jesus is not very convincing, then I think the passage we're about to look at today, I think you're going to enjoy it. If you've ever felt as though the gospel message about Jesus is just plain dumb, I think you're going to enjoy the passage we're about to look at today. This passage has a profound truth to teach us, but it's not an easy truth to hear for people who are clever. So you might find this passage today a bit confronting and hopefully in a helpful way. Let's get into it. We're at point one, God's plan for wisdom. Grab your Bibles, let's have a look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. In the first half of this chapter, we've, we've, come, we've come in today halfway through the chapter, in the first half of this chapter we looked at last week, we've, we saw all the wrong kinds of divisions That were in this church in Corinth that had been created in this church by people following different factional leaders and that kind of mess. Now as we move into the second half of this chapter we immediately have another division. Did you notice that? This is a fundamental division that divides people all over the world. This stark verse speaks about the gospel of Jesus dividing the entire human race absolutely. The division comes from what people see when they look at the gospel message. To some, the gospel message, they just see foolishness. To others, looking at the same gospel message, they see it completely differently as the power of God. How can one message look so different to two different people? Foolishness. Power of God. How can one, the same message, look so different? Well, a few years ago, the HSBC Bank ran a helpful ad campaign that showed that sometimes two people can look at exactly the same thing and see very different things. Up on the screen, sorry it's a bit, uh, a bit dark and the, the board lights are on, but um, up top you've got a camping kind of holiday with the word hell written on it and a cruise liner type holiday with the word holiday written on it. Or, can we go to the next slide? Is it actually the opposite? Is the tent the holiday and the cruise your hell? Can you see the beautiful thing they were doing? Let me show you another one they did. They did uh, leader-follower, the guy in the suit. He's a leader, right? And the guy in the jeans and the casual shoes, he's a follower. Or is it that the guy in the suit's the follower and the guy in the jeans and shoes is the leader? Can you see what they're doing? Two people looking at the same thing, seeing it very differently. Let's go another one. Uh, well, Leaning Tower of Pisa, perfect, beautiful, uh, beautiful sculpture, imperfect because it doesn't have arms and a head. Uh, <laughs> leaning Tower of Pisa, imperfect, it's leaning, sculpture, perfect. Which one's you? Two people looking at the same thing, seeing completely different things. And last one, I, li- I like this one best. Computer is work, baby is play, right? Until you're a mother. Uh, and then baby is work and maybe computer's play. Looking at the same thing, completely different responses. I I really like that clever campaign. Whoever came up with it, very well done. Isn't it incredible? Two different people can look at the exact same object and see two totally different things. Now, the gospel, the message about Jesus, divides the human race in exactly the same way, but it isn't just caused by the viewer's perspective. The reason for this division runs much deeper. And so the Apostle Paul quotes from Isaiah 29 to explain the reasons for this division. And I thought you might like to stop and have a think for yourself what the quote is saying. Because the quote's going to be pretty important for us to understand this passage. So I'm going to give you a chance, with the person next to you, I'm going to give you 30 seconds to see what they think about what the quote is actually saying. There's the question on the screen. You've got 30 seconds. Go for it. Okay, let's have a think about this together. It's an interesting quote, isn't it? Interesting quote. All right, lots more to chat about with that quote. Let's have a think about it together. The quote is saying that God has chosen, deliberately chosen, to nullify and frustrate human wisdom. It is not accidental that many intelligent humans look at the message of the cross and see only foolishness. God has chosen to not be known through human wisdom. You see, intelligence, wisdom, brains, smarts, whatever you want to call it, they give you an advantage in most things, right? You guys know that better than anyone. You've done well out of being a little bit more intelligent than perhaps other people in society. You have an unfair advantage in most things. You had an unfair advantage in the education system. You have an unfair advantage in the job market. You have an unfair advantage in financial matters. You'll get paid more than those who didn't go to university, perhaps. And in all kinds of other ways, too. The world is stacked in favour of the smart and perhaps against the simple. Smarter and wiser people normally get everything, but not with God. Isn't that interesting? This verse is telling us that human wisdom is now under God's judgment. Other parts of the Bible give us reasons why this might be. And it's pretty clear that it's because humans most often use our intelligence to reject God. Not to seek God, but to reject God, to replace God, to try to be our own gods. We humans have used our God-given wisdom to turn against God and oppose Him. So God has turned the whole value system of humanity on its head by making access to him not available through human wisdom. God has subverted the dominant paradigm of human achievement by making it impossible to find your way to him through human wisdom. I know, normally, intelligence opens doors for you and provides opportunities for you. Normally, wisdom works for you and gets you better marks, better job, better money. I know that, but not with God. God has deliberately chosen not to be accessible through human intelligence. Isn't that incredible? Let's keep reading, verses 20 and 21. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God has subverted wisdom. Intelligence has become a handicap in accessing God. And that means that humans who have gloried in their wisdom and been praised for their intelligence are suddenly at a disadvantage in the most important aspect of life, and that is relating to God. Where is the wise one now? Where is the clever debater? Where is the scribe, the writer? Where is the rocket scientist? Where is the academic when it comes to God? The answer is no better off through their intelligence than anyone else in the world. No better off. Everyone has now the same advantage of being able to know God. God has nullified the advantage that the elite have built their lives upon. God has deliberately made the way to access himself, not through how smart you are, but through a completely different way. God has taken away the natural advantage of the smart by making access to himself through belief in a foolish looking gospel and I think you'll see that there is something quite beautiful about that. So you may not have thought how beautiful it is that God has done this because well you're one of the smart ones. But do you ever think about the kids who didn't get into university, who wanted to, who probably worked just as hard as you, maybe even harder who probably wanted to go to university just as much as you, maybe even more, but didn't get that opportunity because their brain isn't quite as fast and effective as yours at academic things. There's something pretty brutal about that reality, isn't there? And that is why there is something quite beautiful about God taking the ATAR out of the equation for accessing heaven. It is beautiful. It is beautiful, but it's not good marketing. Because it just doesn't hit any of the target markets that you want to hit. Let's have a look at it. Verse 22 and 23. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Jewish people, uh, they wanted a conquering Messiah who would come in a blaze of miracles, just like the prophets of the Old Testament. That's what they wanted. The rest of civilised humanity, where the, the passage calls them Greeks because the, the Greeks ruled the world for a couple of hundred years before the first century. So in a sense, it's, it's everyone who was civilised took on that name, Greek. And so we've got the Jews and then we've got the Greeks And they loved their learning, they loved their philosophy. So they were looking for a Messiah who was philosophically brilliant, academically unparalleled. And against all good marketing advice, God sent a crucified Messiah. And this didn't just miss the desired target markets, it gave them exactly what they despised, exactly what they didn't want crucifixion was downright offensive to jewish people offensive it just meant if you were crucified you were a a no good criminal who deserved to be crucified that it was offensive it was shameful crucifixion to a greek was just silly foolish stupid it would be like if you wanted to run for president of the united states on the platform that you survived the electric chair you survived the death penalty so you should be president of the United States well that doesn't make you suitable to be president it just means you're lucky but still a criminal right make no mistake Christ crucified means King executed it is about weakness dishonor shame and punishment and neither Jews or Greeks wanted a Messiah With those kind of credentials. Now you probably know that there are only two kinds of people in the world right? There are only two kinds of people in the world, those who divide everything up into two categories and those who don't. It's the old joke Um, but in today's passage it's really interesting because this theme of two kinds of people just keeps coming up. We saw it in verse 18 with those who are perishing and who see the gospel as foolishness and those who are being saved who see the gospel as the power of God. There's only two kinds of people in the world. And here again, we see two kinds of people, don't we? Jews and Greeks. And in verse 8, sorry, here, the two categories of Jew and Greek are united together in judgment and then in salvation. See, both Jews and Greeks who are perishing will see the message of a crucified Messiah as foolishness. But look at what verse 24 reminds us about people from both of those people groups, Judaism and the rest of the civilized world, verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The crucified Christ is a shameful message to both sides of humanity. But God calls people from both sides And enables them to see in this foolish message of a crucified messiah the absolute wisdom and power of God so what is it that turns a stupid looking message a foolish looking message a dumb message into the absolute power and wisdom of God what is it that makes the change what is it that that changes you from seeing just foolishness to seeing the wisdom and power of God what happens to you, to make that change. That's what we need to work out right now. Um, I'm going to give you the question, give you a chance to have a chat with the person next to you about it. So there it is. What changes the perspective on the cross from foolishness to wisdom? Have a look at the passage, see what you think. 30 seconds, go for it. Okay, let's try and work this out together. What is it that changes you from seeing foolishness to seeing the wisdom and power of God? What is it that changes anyone? Verse 24 tells us. It is the call of God that changes everything, that allows you to see truly the wisdom and power of God in the cross. And this means it is unmistakably God's initiative that changes you to be able to see the power and the wisdom in this foolish-looking gospel. Can you see how God has subverted the most valued gifts among the human race? God has moved the goalposts, God has levelled the playing field, God has rewritten the rule book and every other sporting cliche that you want to put in there, God has probably done. God has made a fool of human wisdom by making salvation through something that human wisdom can't work out. God has outsmarted human wisdom and subverted it. Look at verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God at his worst is still way in front of humanity at our best. The dumbest thing God has ever done is still smarter than the smartest thing any human has ever done. The weakest thing God has ever done is still stronger than the strongest thing any human has ever done. It is just so beautifully subversive. God saves humanity through the dumbest sounding message you have ever heard, that an executed criminal rules the world and offers you the opportunity to join him in his kingdom. The most foolish sounding message ever. And we're at point two, the Corinthians demonstrate this. The Corinthians themselves demonstrate the foolishness Involved with this message and you gotta love how the Apostle Paul gently says this you guys you, you guys perfectly illustrate the foolishness it's, it's a lovely thing to say isn't it he, he he's kind of saying you guys are not the sharpest tools in the shed thank you and he doesn't quite say you're as dumb as a bucket full of hammers but he, he could really couldn't he read verse 26 with me for considering for consider your calling brothers Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. God didn't just choose the winners of the world, the elite of the world, the in crowd. God chose all kinds of people. And not many were powerful, wise or from elite families. God chose the nobodies over the somebodies. And the lack of worthiness of these nobodies actually communicates a lot about the message of the cross and about the God who saves through the message of the cross the decisive factor is not your intelligence the decisive factor in salvation is the God who chooses salvation is all of God it's not about human merit not about human worthiness or human anything God has shown us how abhorrent it is that we worship human wisdom and God has exposed it in the most dramatic way. Let's keep reading verses 27 to 29. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why did God choose the nobodies? To shame the the elite, who were proud of their intelligence, proud of their position, proud of their power. God turned the tables on the usual human power structures to bring shame on those who exploit the usual human power structures for their own self-serving advantage. And God has done it all to put an end to human boasting. We humans, we can be pretty arrogant can't we? And often the smarter you are and the more powerful and successful you become, the more arrogant you also become. And we quickly forget that the smartest thing we've ever done is still dumber than the dumbest thing God has done. We naturally elevate ourselves and we naturally devalue God But in choosing ordinary people for salvation, God has subverted the normal human power structure and put boasting to an end. Because it's not all about you, is it? It's all about Christ Jesus. That's what verse 30 tells us. And because of Him, that is because of God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. As the old saying goes, it is not about what you know, it is all about who you know, as long as you know Jesus Christ. If you have been called by God to believe the foolish message of the cross, you now have wisdom, righteousness, sanctification and redemption. But notice how you have them, you have them in Christ. He is those things for you. He brings those things to you. It is all about what God has done for you in Jesus. So when when you find salvation, you have nothing in yourself to boast about. It is only what Jesus has done that is worth boasting about. Wisdom has been redefined through the cross. All praise and glory is now deserved by God and His crucified Messiah. It's not about you and me, it's all about Him. So I want to encourage you to boast a bit more. I want to encourage you to boast a bit more. Boast as often as you can. And I think we have a word for boasting about Jesus. I think we call it evangelism. And I want to encourage you to to boast away, boast lots. It's a great thing to do. Boast about your Saviour. Jesus alone is worthy of your boasting And when you boast about him, you are not just giving him the praise and the glory he deserves, but you're also putting out there the foolish message that might save others. What a good thing to do. When you understand yourself wisely and you boast about Jesus rather than yourself, you can be surprisingly secure in yourself just as God made you, whether you're clever or not whether you're successful or not, whether you're powerful or not. You are just you with all of your strengths and all of your weaknesses, but you've been loved by God just as you are and called into his family. And that is better than anything else in the world. So even nobodies like you and me can rest securely Knowing that God has considered us somebody. And that is what really matters. The Corinthians themselves beautifully demonstrate the foolishness of the gospel. And so did their apostle, we see in point three. Paul demonstrates this as well. Have a look in your Bibles, the first four verses of chapter two. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power the Apostle Paul if I may sum up what we've just read the Apostle Paul didn't come to Corinth with a smoke machine In fact, the Apostle Paul didn't even come to Corinth with a well-honed, impressive speech because Paul wasn't even trying to be impressive in his communication. He was just trying to communicate the foolish gospel really clearly. And did you notice the way Paul summarised his foolish gospel? Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus the King, crucified. It's all about Jesus and it's all about that shameful execution. And that is the Christian gospel, the foolish message through which God chooses to save people. That's also the message that we are trying to proclaim here at UNSW, isn't it? That's what we want to be on about. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In fact, the CBS mission statement, I don't know if you've seen it lately, this is our mission statement at CBS, prayerfully proclaiming, The crucified Christ as Lord of all. We evangelise, teach, train and send each other as God's servants into all the world. That's what we're trying to do. But can you see, can we go next slide? Crucified Christ, Lord of all, King executed. It's really important, isn't it? Our whole ministry is built out of that foolish gospel right at the centre of it. And I hope your whole life is built out of that foolish gospel right at the centre of it. And when we realise just how much God's got this through his foolish gospel, it actually takes some of the performance anxiety off of us. The Apostle Paul, how does he talk about his performance? He doesn't say, I was slick, I was fantastic. He says that his performance wasn't all that impressive. He didn't come with a polished speech. He describes his performance as weakness and fear and much trembling. That sounds like me when I do walk-up evangelism. Weakness and fear and much trembling. Does it sound a bit like you? Paul the man matched his message. Weakness and foolishness characterized them both. And perhaps you and I, if we want to follow Jesus, need to get used to being characterized the same way. I was down at Maroubra yesterday morning having a coffee and a chat with some guys that I often talk to down there. Uh, they're kind of good mates, they don't follow Jesus, I've just met them down there, and we just have a chat some mornings. They're lovely guys, but I was wearing my CBS t-shirt and they gave me a bit of stick about campus Bible study. They know what I do, they know I work here, they just like doing it. And I thought, of, you know, what do I do at that point? You Because know, I like a bit of witty banter as much as the next person, but what do you do? Do you, do you fight it out? Do you, do you have the comeback line? Do you, do you kind of have to have the last word, the last laugh? I'm comfortable losing that one. I just say, "Poor me," move on. When you when you're secure in Jesus and you understand that, well, the, the gospel's all about foolishness. It means you don't always have to win. You don't always have to sound the most impressive. You don't always have to have the last word or the last laugh. That is the weakness. That characterizes the gospel. If you have security in Christ, you have the security to not always have to win. Now there's one more interesting issue in these verses that almost seems at odds with everything else we've seen. Paul is talking about his own weakness and trembling, he's talking about his unimpressive speech and wisdom and then suddenly in verse 4, he talks about his ministry coming with demonstrations of the Spirit and with power. That sounds really impressive, suddenly. Now, I've, I've, been, I've visited churches that promoted things like this, demonstrations of the Spirit and power, and they did not seem to be glorying in their weakness at that point, or their foolishness. The demonstrations of the Spirit and the power that these churches promoted were more like powerful signs and wonders of God's power in today and, and, and they sometimes involve purported healings of people and purported miracles and all kinds of things. Is that what Paul means by demonstrations of the Spirit and power? Here's your last chance to have a little chat with the person next to you. What do you think Paul means? By demonstrations of the Spirit and of power. 30 seconds. Okay, let's have a look at this together. What are these demonstrations of the Spirit and power... That, um, well, some churches use that language today to talk about some pretty impressive stuff. Uh, is that what possible, the Apostle Paul is talking about? Pretty impressive, amazing things, signs, wonders? Well, the, wor- the words come up in another of Paul's letters that I think help us to understand what he's speaking about. So can we go to uh, 1 Thessalonians, uh, chapter, where are we? We're in chapter f- uh, 1, verses 4 to 8 that's uh, slipped off the screen. Um, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and the Holy Spirit. And with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake and you became imitators of us and the Lord. Do we have another one? Excellent. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Now these verses are all about what? They're all about changed lives. Lives so powerfully changed by the gospel that the word about it spread out all over Europe and all over the world. What is demonstration of the Spirit and power? It is most clearly seen in changed lives. And I think that's exactly what Paul's speaking about in both 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians. The context is lives changed by the gospel that become a great example to people all over Europe. Where are demonstrations of the Spirit and power most clearly seen? In the miraculous transformation of lives from rebel sinner to child of God. That is the greatest sign or wonder ever. A life changed completely, miraculously, by the foolish gospel. It's the most powerful miracle there is. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have had the most powerful miracle God can do, transforming you from rebel to child of God. Nothing more powerful. I hope you've seen today why God has deliberately chosen to subvert the dominant paradigm of our human culture and to make salvation through a completely foolish message. But just in case, the Apostle Paul has one more reminder for you in our last verse, verse 5. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's why God has chosen to do it this way. Where would you prefer your faith to rest? Do you know, there's a lot of atheists out there who have rested their faith in human wisdom. If you are really clever and you use all of your cleverness to try to find God, to look for God, I suspect that you too will wind up close to being an atheist because God has chosen not to be found through human cleverness. But God in his kindness can bring you to himself by calling you to salvation through the foolish message of the cross. And because that is the only way to salvation, you can see why the Apostle Paul says it all rests on God's power, not on man's wisdom. The Corinthians demonstrated it. The Apostle Paul demonstrated it. Will you demonstrate this truth that salvation is only through the foolishness and weakness of a crucified Messiah? We're at our last point and we'll finish by 5-2. You don't need to worry about that. Will you demonstrate this? Now, I recognize this is going to be a pretty tough challenge for many of you because you are clever. You're smart. You are the winners when you play by the normal human rules. You're the ones who've been gifted by God with intelligence that helps you answer multiple choice questions more correctly than others. And you may be able to write the odd essay and solve math problems too. Well done. You are amongst the group that will find it hardest to accept a foolish gospel about the shameful, weak death of the king. You are amongst the elite of the human race, but that just means you will find it harder to accept that God's way of foolishness is actually the wisest way. Because you are good at performing, you will find it hard to accept that salvation is not about your performance. Because you are intelligent and gifted, you will find it hard to accept that your place with God is not impacted by your intelligence or your giftedness. Will you trust that God knows best? And will you demonstrate that trust in the way you live? Let me give you one little example of where it will will play out in your life. Valuing people. How you value people. Rather than looking down on those who are less intelligent and less gifted than you are, Rather than judging people by the standards of the world that God has overturned, will you choose to see people the way God sees people? Will you demonstrate your trust in God's foolish gospel in the way that you try to help people become followers of Jesus? Have you noticed uh, that Campus Bible Study doesn't do apologetic debates? You know the debates where you get in the smartest Christian you can find and they get in the smartest atheist they can find and then the two sort of pit their wits against each other and put their best arguments together. And you know the audience, you know how always both sides, they both know that their champion won and both sides don't move an inch in what they think. We don't do that because of passages like this. Because this passage tells me that we shouldn't expect to win. A debate like that will you trust that evangelism is not about your performance will you trust that even your shaky nervous words about the foolish gospel of the crucified king can be used by our powerful god to bring people to life in christ and will you trust that the best way for people to see the power of god in you is not in your success, or your impressiveness, or even your intelligence. Will you trust that God can use you best when your life demonstrates the foolish gospel? And when people can see your weakness, your foolishness, your dependence? I guess in the end, what I'm asking you is this, will you trust that God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom let's pray our father we want to thank you for this really challenging passage that really does push us to think about the way we relate to each other and the way we relate in this world that has valued things so highly that we tend to be good at father please forgive us for our pride and our arrogance and our boasting that is not in jesus please help us to boast in him for everything he's done for us. We pray that you'll help us to keep uh, holding out his gospel, as foolish as it sounds, to those who need life in him. Please help us to keep loving people by doing that. We pray it in his name. Amen.
1: Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out on Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.